Welcome to As Spiders Do, the University of Richmond podcast where we share stories about our amazing alumni. I'm your host, Maggie Johnson, from the class of 2018. Today, I'm speaking with Dory Griggs, West Hampton class of 1981. Dory is a trailblazer, both during her time at UR and since. She's currently the chaplain for her local fire department, and in this episode, she shares some tips for protecting our personal peace during challenging times. Without further ado, here's the show. love to hear how you ended up at UR. Well, it's kind of a fun story given that my career interest was being in sports, PR and marketing. I had applied for schools mostly in the Northeast because I'm from New Jersey. My mom went to a wedding and sat next to someone who played on the baseball team at University of Richmond and spoke so highly of the school. She came home from this wedding and insisted that I look into the University of Richmond. So it was the only school she allowed me to apply to that I hadn't seen first. Every other school I applied to, we visited first, and then I could apply. So on the the recommendation of this baseball player. (laughs) That's amazing. So you applied, and did you get to see UR before you attended, or was it a day? Yes. I applied, but then went for spring break in my in high school and it was the best time to visit the campus with the azaleas were out and it was just gorgeous and um, had everything i wanted as far as coursework and um, smaller class sizes and just a beautiful campus and right near a larger city so i'm from a small town and richmond is huge compared to where i'm from <laughs> and was university of richmond where there as many new jerseyans The thing was, while there were a lot of people from New Jersey there, I was the first person from my high school to ever go. Many had followed after I went, but I was the very first from Sparta High School in Sparta, New Jersey to attend U of R. Excellent. So you were trailblazing a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't intend to, but that's the way it worked out in, in a lot of cases. And so what did you study at UR? I went in thinking I was going to major in business. And I took accounting and economics, and I did not get into the business school. But my sophomore year, I took an elective in speech communications. And I really enjoyed the public speaking and learning about it and so forth. So that's what I I majored in. And took some theater classes, too, along with it. It ended up being the best base to have for what I ended up doing eventually. I know you were, was it the first female manager of the men's basketball team? Is that yes. correct? Yes. Yes. Um, it was in the 78, 79 school year, as I tell my friends, back, as my kids say, back in the dark ages. <laughs> when I was in college, I, my freshman year, I helped the secretary for the wrestling department and also the basketball coach at the time first semester, the wrestling coach needed some student help. So I helped him and ended up with a, I have a credit on my official college transcripts for men's varsity wrestling. And I also have several credits for men's varsity basketball on my official U of R college transcripts. (laughs) That's amazing. Your day-to-day as a manager, what was that like? Well, managers do a lot of the behind the scenes work and work with the coaches and set up practices and so forth. So that it depended on what time of year, preseason, we measured vertical jumps, which everything is now automated. It, it seems like really the dark ages, the way we did it. The guys would hold a piece of chalk in their hand and then jump next to a wall and mark it, and then we'd measure. <laughs> 
you know, it's all automated now. Also, you're in charge of the equipment, the uniforms, the shoes, the basketballs, doing the laundry after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was real glamorous. <laughs> but I was also the first woman to travel with a men's team to away games, which meant you carry extra shoes with you and uniforms and so forth. And the guys on the team before the first trip that I was to go on had me convinced that the school wasn't going to pay for a single room for me, that I'd have to room with the trainer at the time was a married younger man about to go to med school. So they had me thinking that I would have to room with Sid Martin. <laughs> I did, of course, have my own room when, okay. when, <laughs> when we went on trips. I spent a lot of time well, on the road trips by myself because the guys kind of thought I was a spy for the coaches. And, you know, I was this is 18, 19 year old kid with the coaches. So I just brought reading or whatever. And when we weren't at a practice or a game or a free game meal, I was in my room. Is there any like memorable moments from either, you know, practices or travel? Like what kind of sticks out as the most memorable part of that experience? Well, I'm sure there's some stories the guys wouldn't want me to tell. <laughs> some of them have ad- apologized in our adult years for, for the pranks that they would play on me. <laughs> John Richardson came from the Richmond Braves as our marketing director for the athletic yeah. department. And he had a great mind for really outrageous kind of promotions and get people in seats. Our star player was Michael Perry, and he used to dunk over people. And so John Richardson arranged with Nabisco an Oreo cookie double stuff night. And there was a lady dressed as a big double stuff Oreo cookie, (laughs) this huge cookie she wore. And anytime Michael Perry would dunk the ball, she'd throw double stuff cookies into the stands. (laughs) (laughs) I've since been to games more recently and see how more sophisticated the promotions and marketing is now. Uh, Are you close with any of the basketball players from that time? Well, a few of them. We have reunions. And last February, we got together. It was the first time I'd been able to go for the alumni night in mm-hmm. years. There were a couple of guys, especially there's one that I hadn't seen since we graduated in 1981. And he and I are just real good friends. And it was so special to be able to spend some time catching up with him in person, but then seeing everybody else that was there. It was it was great fun. I love that. The basketball team, I traveled with them for a while, but my senior year, I worked in sports information cool. and then also helped with the football team in the, the summertime. So there are a lot of guys that were on the football team were like my kid brothers. We oh. we have a family portrait of a few of us that back then spider club families would have players that they'd adopt and have over for Sunday dinner. This one family who are still very big spider fans, the, um, Charlie and Jackie Fagan used to have us in for Sunday lunch. and for Christmas one year, Olin Mills called the dorm phone. We had landlines in our dorm rooms and they were selling family portraits. So I answered the phone and said, yes, I'll book a family portrait. My name is Dory Griggs. There'll be four of us. And I called the three other athletes who were all football players at the time. One of them, it was Tom Carney, Jim, we called him Jimmy Lyles. He goes by Jamie. And then Mike London who is now head coach at William and Mary, but they were all like my kid brothers. They're all a lot taller than me, but 
we have Olin Mills family portrait of, of the four of us. And that's what we gave the Fagan family for Christmas that year. So sweet. I love that. Yeah. So where did your interest in sports come? Was that just like something you grew up with, something you embraced in college? Well, I love playing basketball myself. I was never good enough to, to play competitively. I played intramurals. And in high school, I kept the book for the boys basketball games. And I kept the book for baseball. And then my senior year, we had a really good boys track team in high school. So I traveled with the track team and kept the running score at the meets. And then I would call the newspapers with the scores. There were only two graduate programs in sports administration, one in Massachusetts and one in Ohio at the time. So the best advice I got was to do as much as you can when you're an undergrad, if you could afford to volunteer, because you'll build your resume that way. By the time I was a senior, I had real life experience in, in college athletics. And I ended up getting a job before I graduated with what was then called the CFB International Women's Tennis Tournament that was held at the Robin Center in the summers. So I ended up getting hired as the public relations person for the women's professional women's tournament. I ended up meeting a lot of tennis players. And then after that was hired by the university to be the assistant sports information director. That's so cool. So how long did you work in the sports slash PR industry? Well, in one way or the other for most of my 20s, because I, I went from Richmond to the Richmond Braves. I worked in the front office for a season, the 1982 season, and we won the International League pennant that year. Oh, cool. That's awesome. And then I ended up working for a hotel that wanted to get the visiting teams to stay at the hotel. And... Ended up getting not only all the University of Richmond opponents, but we worked it out with the head football coach at the time, who was Dal Sheely. I had both the home and away teams were staying in the same hotel. Oh, wow. <laughs> Did you have to run like interference between the two? <laughs> like well, we had the away team in this one tower of the, the hotel. And then the home team, Richmond, would stay on campus and have their meetings. And then when that was over, they'd bus over to the the hotel and I'd meet them at the side of the hotel and let them in a side door where they walked up the stairs and immediately had bed checks by their managers uh -huh. to be in the room. And then in the morning they left first thing. The opposing team knew that the home team was going to be in the, inside the hotel. None of the players knew that was, that was kind of neat. I also ended up getting all the visiting teams for VCU booked at our property, which were out in the West End. Okay. And they had always stayed at a Holiday Inn near downtown, near the VCU campus. And I knew enough about athletics and how it worked that I, with our general manager, we ended up hosting a shootout contest at the halftime of the basketball game. So we were a sponsor. Then I called all the opposing teams and we had a decent rate and we had transportation that we provided back and forth. And I got all the teams, the visiting teams for VCU to stay at our property. Well, J.D. Barnett was the head coach at VCU at the time. And I got a call out of the blue from J.D. Barnett's secretary asking me to come and meet with the head basketball coach at VCU. So I went down and I knew him because we were arch rivals and, <laughs> and sat there and he said, I just wanted to meet who did this. And he said the general manager of the hotel that they used to stay in all the time called him and said, you need to do something. You need to 
to call and get these teams to stay with us again. And he said, I've been in this business a while. So before I did that, I went down to our marketing department and found out that you are a sponsor <laughs> and I can't do it, anything about it. And I just wanted to meet that the person who did this. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I love that so much. <laughs> So yeah, you learn to be creative. Um, you know, that came from working the minor league baseball. You try things and see if it works. If it doesn't, then there's a bunch more games. You right. can get <laughs> people in seats. Time. So I learned the strategy and I'd been around sports long enough that he, there I was 22 at the time, 23. That's amazing. And so then now you work as a chaplain. What caused that transition for you to go from sports and PR to chaplaincy? Yeah, well, they're all people related. And I've always felt like the most fun I had with anything, like at the Richmond Braves, they gave me several nights that I could make these passes for. There was a school for kids with cerebral palsy, and we could give them tickets to come to a, a few nights. And cool. we did some things with the school, brought some players there. And that I always enjoyed that kind of thing, doing things for other people. And long story how I got there, but I eventually moved to Atlanta and I worked for a tennis tournament here when I first got here in 85. Worked in various marketing and PR kind of positions. And I started working as the director of marketing and development for a retreat center, a Methodist church retreat center. I'm Presbyterian, but felt a call to to go to seminary at, while I was at Richmond, but I had such a strong path in sports that my mother, you know, encouraged me to stay with that and that the church needed active lay people. And it seemed to make sense. So I did that for a while, but working then with all these ministers at a, a church adult retreat center, I started feeling that tug again. And then I went to Columbia Theological Seminary to visit, and that's the Presbyterian one. And as soon as I got there, I, it just felt right. It was the place to go. So I started there in 95, but due to a lot of family things, it took seven years to get a three-year degree. <laughs> and one of the things I developed while I was a student was a outreach to journalists that covered traumatic events, which put me on a trajectory. Then after I graduated from seminary, I produced an interfaith dialogue television show. And it was the initial push into Iraq at that time in the early 2000s. And it was an unprecedented time for journalists. There were more embedded journalists, not just American journalists, but journalists from around the world were embedded with our troops, with other troops. And I started a list of journalists embedded. So, And I had the opportunity to meet some of those journalists when they came back from Iraq or Afghanistan. And I brought them a copy of the list to show them that people were thinking of them. And I found out how much that meant to them. Amazing. That's so cool. It kind of it kind of strikes me that we're facing a little bit of that right now with mm -hmm. the two wars in the world. Do you have words of wisdom or advice as collectively we're we're seeing that happen? How would you suggest that we create that space for us to engage with it in the best, I guess, healthiest way for us or as far as the news the, in general? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, obviously we have journalists and soldiers who are on the front lines, but with the social media space that we have now, it's like everyone's almost experiencing it more in depth. Through your experience, talk to people about this. Where do you see similarities? Where, like, just any like, kind of words of wisdom that you can share? You know, well, what I learned since I was in seminary and I graduated in 2002, I started studying traumatic stress and related disorders. So for the past 20 some years, that's been the world I've been in. I've had the opportunity to 
attend a number of meetings at the Carter Center. They have a, Rosalind Carter has the mental health journalism program, and they hosted a series of meetings that I ended up blogging for one of their fellows for that program. And the meetings were on returning veterans and supporting them, but we're also working with journalists who put their lives on the line to make sure that the world is informed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in the political climate here in the past 20 years, there's been a lot of media bashing. The people that are covering breaking news that are out there embedded with the, the soldiers are there when they're killed, they're shot at, they're targeted, or they're feet away from the person next to them and just miss them. I remind people that the, these are the people that we rely on. How are you learning about what's going on in the world? You turn on the television, you pick up a newspaper, you listen to the radio, but no one thinks about the person that's going into the war zone when everyone else is trying to get out. And they have families that worry about them and they're not all protected in fancy bunker someplace. Most of them are also in danger. What I've learned with the increase in images on all forms of media is there, there's a real problem and real risk of secondary traumatization from continuing to be bombarded with the, these difficult images and situations. So the first case of this that I had to turn off the TV and stop watching the news was 9-11. I'm from New Jersey. I knew the likelihood of knowing people who were in that building, and it turned out a childhood friend who was my best buddy when I was little, was in the second tower and killed. Because I stopped watching TV, I didn't see a special on 60 Minutes. They did a whole segment on my friend Todd Ranke's widow and her in-laws all going into the city looking for Todd in hospitals and so forth, like so many people were doing. And the way I found out Todd was in the second tower was in January of 2002, I happened to reach out to the pastor of the church where he and I were baptized as, as babies. We were neighbors and we were just buddies. And I said something to the pastor in my email that I'm about to graduate from Columbia Seminary. And I was just getting nostalgic and look your website from the church I was baptized in. And P.S. Please say hello to the Ranke family for me because I knew they were still in Summit, New Jersey. And that pastor called me. And that's how I found out about Todd. But to protect ourselves and the children in our households, it is best to moderate the intake of news and know what you can bear. And constantly glued to the television, seeing all of that, it can really cause all kinds of mental health issues for people. You walk that line of wanting to be informed. So I tend to, to read more than I watch. It's easier to self-censor and you don't have the images. I can read a book, but I can't watch a movie about the same book because the images stay with you longer. Thank you for sharing all of that. To flip it to a little bit of a happier note, what's yeah. kind of your favorite part about being a chaplain? What's been some of your favorite experiences? There's there's a lot um, in different contexts. In the fire department, I've been with the city of Roswell Fire Department for almost seven years now. It'll be seven years in February. And I'm now part-time staff. Getting to know the, the firefighters and their families and being there for big occasions and that kind of thing, that, that's the fun part. My first hospital visit was to visit a newborn baby. Fortunately, that's been the only reason I've gone to a hospital for a firefighter or newborn baby visits. Those are the best. They're, they're fun things. You get to 
to do in the community with the fire department, you know, public events and, and, and so forth. That's the fun part. The difficult scenes with fire scenes and so forth with family. It's good to know that I bring something to the table to help someone because the incident commander, usually a battalion chief, has to focus on the event, the, the firefighters in and out and how things are progressing. And when I'm there, check with the incident commander first when I come onto the scene and then get permission to talk to the family. And then I, I'm with the family and can help them do things like maybe contact their insurance, They'll line up someplace to stay that night. Most people don't realize, even though the main fire was isolated to a room or something, the smoke is so toxic, you can't live in your home for a while. Sometimes you have to take a home down to the studs because of the, the toxic smoke in a home. So being able to be there with the families while in one of the worst days of their life, watching smoke pour out of their house is an honor and it's a privilege. I also get called to scenes where someone's died for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's unexpected medical issue at home. It's a privilege to be with the people while they're um, with some of the worst things that can happen to a person to lose a loved one and to be there and help them find the support that they need. But I do keep my fingers involved with sports here in Atlanta. Coming up, it'll be my 29th year in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl press box as, as a volunteer. And when the Final Four has been here a few years, I've worked in the media room. There's a group of us that used to work in sports full time, and now we just do it for fun and help. I love that you almost flip-flop, like you went from working in sports and volunteering in the, the church or faith community, and then you, now you work in the more of the faith space and you volunteer with sports. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it, it's it's fun. It's different, but it's it's my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really comes full circle, all of it. That's, mm -hmm. amazing. <laughs> that's what I always tell my kids. And I've had the opportunity to speak to college classes and I try to pass on the wisdom that was shared with me early on. Like Howie Freeman was the marketing director for the New Jersey Nets when I was in college. And he's the one who told me to volunteer as much time as you can when you're in college in the field you want to be in and to talk to people that are doing what you think you want to do and get their their wisdom. So I've been able to pass that along when I speak to college kids and in high school students too, when you're picking a major, you think you want to do something, but like my brother went to MIT, early admissions in electrical engineering. He spent a summer internship out in Long Beach, California and decided he hated the work. <laughs> So he, he pivoted. He ended up with a PhD in electronic music because oh. music was really his interest. So cool. I love how he combined the two electronics and yeah. music. That's so cool. <laughs> but it's important. That's why I think what Richmond does now with the students offering internships and you know the work-study type situations is so valuable because you have a chance that you might think it sounds like a great job. But then you see what the day-to-day -day is and you either love it or you don't. And then you know early enough that you can pivot and find something else. Yeah, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I did a law study program for six weeks and was like, yeah, no, this is not <laughs> it for me. Yeah. And see, I thought I going to Richmond, I needed to be a business manager to do what I needed. But I had the opportunity to meet PR people with professional teams. And they said, you, they'll teach you what they want you to know as far as how they operate and, and so forth. So having that public speaking background, and that's most people's major fear is standing up and speaking in front of people and being able to learn how to 
tame the butterflies. You always have butterflies. Butterflies are a good thing. It helps you know you're taking something seriously. But to to be able to stand up and be that person in office, if there's a presentation to do that, that raises your profile and you become a valuable part of a team if that's what you can do well. You mentioned earlier that your major was kind of the best decision you made at UR and really influenced your career. What are those connection points that you see between the two, between UR and your career? Well, in the positions that I was as a student on campus, I tended to be fairly visible as the only woman on the bench during a game. Alumni would come up and introduce themselves to me, (laughs) sometimes major alumni. And yeah, I'm this late teen, but these men who own companies or big executives, I was doing something that they'll never have an opportunity to do. And John Richardson, who was that marketing person I mentioned earlier, pointed that out. He said, you'll do, you're in places that most of these people will never be in. And it's an opportunity that you shouldn't take it for granted. So I carried that with me in, in all the different things I did. I've done some really interesting things and I, that a lot of people don't get to do. The, the public speaking part, when I went to seminary, there's this trope that people impose on women in seminary that don't feel called to a congregation. They assume it's because you don't want to preach. You don't want to get up and speak in front of people. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not my problem. <laughs> I, I just know that chaplaincy was more what I w- was called to do. In my preaching class, they had us meet with a voice coach one-on-one. And you're in an like, amphitheater kind of classroom, and you, you're all at the front, and she was in the back row, and she asked us to each individual, and it was just you and that person in the room, to, to speak on whatever you wanted to for a little bit so she could see how you projected your voice. So I, I did whatever I said, and she looked at me and goes, you've had training. <laughs> so being a public speaking major came in real handy when you have to give sermons. I love that. That's excellent. How do you tame your own butterflies when you're you're getting up to speak or for anything that you have butterflies for? I used to get so anxious my freshman and sophomore year when it came to exams that I developed this thing where if I had a big paper due or a, an exam on a Friday, I made sure I had something fun I was going to do later that night after the exam time was over. So at a certain point, I'd study as much as I could, and then I'd get to a point where I can't study anymore, but I'll start focusing on this party or trip I was going to take or something. That's an excellent trick. I love it. I think it's so important to kind of plan the fun things. So I want to talk a little bit. You shared a comedy video, a stand-up routine that oh. you did with me, and I loved it. But I would love to just hear a little bit about how you got into stand-up and what, what that's been like. Oh, <laughs> Well, that's a that's another mental trick on dealing with anxiety and the different kind of butterflies. I'd always wanted to take this class. In 2011, my son was about to graduate from the Citadel and commission into the military. That's a different kind of butterfly that I was talking about. And I thought, well, this would be a good time. So I'll take this comedy writing class to deal with the anxiety I was feeling over my son about to commission into the army and he was armor officer, pretty much guaranteeing combat arms position in the army so he could get deployed. So I took the level one comedy writing class. And then two years later, in 2012, I guess late 2012, he was about to deploy to Afghanistan. So I took the level two comedy <laughs> writing class. That That's how I got into those classes. And our graduation was at the Punchline, which is a comedy club here in Atlanta. And then we had a talent show 
here in the city of Roswell and I volunteered to be do a stand stand up set. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's fun and it comes in handy be, because of the the work I do is so heavy, but knowing when to inject humor and help people see the lighter side of things handy a good bit in the work in chaplaincy, especially in a hospital setting where there's a lot of scary medical things you're dealing with. It's really excellent. I have one last question for you, but before I ask that, I just want to ask if there was anything else you wanted to share, any other words of wisdom. You have so many just like amazing nuggets kind of built into as we've been talking. <laughs> well, the the theme in my life has been change. There's been a lot of change, not just career-wise. Being able to adapt and see change as an opportunity is a very good skill to cultivate. A lot of things happened. You know, I was put in a lot of interesting situations. There were no sexual harassment laws when I was in college. They weren't on the book yet. So learning to be professional, keep your head up and deflect, <laughs> <laughs> which unfortunately a lot of women have, have had to, to learn that. that. That's just when we had the Me Too movement a few years back, a lot of people had to reflect on, okay, I guess I've done that too. But it also helps in adapting to new situations and keeping positive. I love that kind of framing because I think the other aspect of the Me Too was so many women being like, oh, I guess I have experienced some not okay things, but it's so normalized for women that we don't always realize that it's not, a, not, it's not okay. So I, I love that you kind of, that you tie those things together. How else have you cultivated adaptability in your own life? When, when you're facing a big change, how do you move through that? I try to learn as much as I can about the scary things. Like my son going into the army, I've watched things and read things I never would have thought. Like he was really into modern army combatives. So I learned what that was about. It's like jujitsu in the army and going to the Citadel was really scary for me as a mom because you hear stories and so forth. So learning about that experience. And that's what I blogged about with that fellow at the Carter Center. And my entries for her military blog ended up getting more hits than the other contributors at one point, because never underestimate the research skills of an anxious mom who's about <laughs> to send their child to a military school. And they'd find the blog entries. They're still finding it. I'll still get messages once in a while from people who, if you, you Google the Citadel and parents or knob year or anything, a lot of my blog entries will come up. But that's how I dealt with my anxiety about sending a child to a military school was a lot of research and understanding. And that's what I encourage people to do, like with scary medical diagnosis, learn as much as you can about it and read about it and ask all your questions. And it, it takes the power of the unknown away from the scary stuff to you feel like you understand it more and it's a little less scary that way. Thank you for sharing that. So my last question for you, and I ask everyone this, so it's my favorite question. To you, what does it mean to be a Richmond spider? A Richmond spider. Let's see. I learned how to think on my own and be creative and stand on my own two feet. But it was a, an environment to make mistakes. As one of my friends my freshman year pointed out, he said, go ahead, make all your mistakes now because everyone else is making their own mistakes. And years from now, they're not going to remember yours because they <laughs> had their own. But it was a, an environment to, to explore and learn from. I did not get accepted to the business school, but I did get special permission to take some marketing classes from the dean of the business school later. I think he was a basketball fan and knew I was a manager of the basketball team that might have helped. <laughs> Didn't do great in the, the marketing class, but I learned a lot. And it, 
just the, the academic freedom to explore what I was interested in and the professors getting on board with that was, was a huge asset. Thanks for listening to As Spiders Do from the University of Richmond Office of Alumni Engagement. We hope you enjoyed hearing from our alumni and learned a little bit more about what it means to be a Richmond spider. This episode was edited and produced by Charlotte Fematter, Assistant Director for Student and Young Graduate Engagement. Our episode music is by FAS Sounds from Pixabay. You can subscribe to As Spiders Do wherever you get your podcasts. Rate our show and leave us a review to let us know what you think. We're always looking for new stories to share. So let us know who else we should feature by emailing us at alumni at richmond.edu. That's all for this episode. Talk to you soon. And remember, there are spiders everywhere, and that's a really good thing. Mm-hmm.